Hi. Thank you all for coming uh, to our last event in our lecture series. Uh, it's a pleasure and uh, honor for me to introduce today Orit Bashkin. Uh, Orit, besides of being a compatriot, uh, <laughs> she uh, got her uh, bachelor and master's degree in Tel Aviv University and her PhD from Princeton. Uh, she is now, she, she's associate professor at the University of Chicago and she had one book, The Other Iraq, came out with Stanford University Press and their second book, uh, The New Babylonians, uh, is going to be out in June with Stanford University Press. Uh, and our talk today is about the Jewish community in Iraq and uh, we are happy to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, can you hear me fine? Uh, is it okay? So. Um, I'd like to uh, thank Lior for inviting me, Yoav for coming here, uh, and also uh, the rest of you for uh, coming to this uh, talk. It's really a pleasure being here. Um, so in the talk today, I'm going to talk about uh, the history of Iraqi Jews in the 20th century. Um, in 1947, Rene Dengur was chosen as the beauty queen of Baghdad. Her elegance and beauty are commemorated today on Google Images in order to celebrate a moment when a dazzling Jewish woman holding a statuette of Aphrodite, I think you can see the statue here. Uh, whoa, well, maybe you can't. Um, holding a statuette of um, Aphrodite uh, could symbolize the splendor of modern Iraq. The recent interest in Rene might suggest that despite the realities of the Arab-Israeli conflict, some Jews, Muslims, Iraqis, and Arabs reject the conspiracy theories and the racist vocabulary that have colored the discourses of the conflict and privilege in their stead other sentiments, nostalgia for a shared Arab-Jewish past, longing for a different kind of Iraq, and a vernacular memory of Jewish-Iraqi coexistence not mediated by nation-state. The Jewish-Iraqi experience of these audiences is very meaningful, and there is a sense that it could inspire an imagining of a new future in Iraq, Palestine, and Israel. Now, more specifically, in the years 1921-1951, the Jewish-Iraqi community thrived. Numbering around 150,000, this primarily urban uh, community figured prominently in Iraq's culture, literature, and economy. In this talk today, I raise a few questions relating to the meanings of a Jewish sense of belonging to an Iraqi community through a reading of two poems written by Iraqi Jews. In doing so, I explore the ways in which uh, Jews wrote about modernity and secularism and the manners in which these texts shed light on social politi political processes occurring in Iraq at the time. Uh, now, in Iraq, and many uh, post-colonial critics noticed this, uh, the term Arab Jew uh, was used. Uh, now, in Israel post, uh, and elsewhere in the diaspora, some post-colonial critics used the term Arab Jew not only as a way of thinking about the identities of Jews who lived in Arab lands, but also as a way of critiquing Israel's uh, discriminatory practices when it came to its non-European uh, populations. However, to impact the problematics of Arab-Jewish identities, note plural here, and the relationship to Arab culture, we need to pay close attention to the term Arab and Jew. While in the interwar period, especially as this period opened, the word Arab also meant a Bedouin, it preeminently, it preeminently signified the speaker of the Arabic language. 
But as you well know, the Arabic language is typified by the glossia, namely a divergence between a written language on the one hand and a variety of colloquial dialects on the other. Iraq indeed had a number of these uh, colloquial dialects, including one spoken by Baghdadi Jews. So Iraqi Jews had different relationship to the Arabic languages. Some were able to read and write in Arabic. Others were more educated, read the Quran or understood the Quran and appreciated both the classical and modern uh, Arabic literature and even felt the need to contribute to the sphere of Arabic letters. Some, however, were illiterate and only spoke a local uh, Jewish dialect of Arabic. So when we say Arab Jew, what does Arab signify here? The connections of being part of and even loving Arab culture and the political choices made by Iraqi Jews are not always obvious and self-explanatory. True, the intellectual elite of Iraq, namely its newspaper editors, short story writers, journalists, poets, and publishers, included many prominent Jews who wrote in Arabic and about Arab culture and history. These Jews cherished Arabic literature and contributed much to the Arab literary scene. Some called themselves Arab Jews. On the other hand, many Iraqi Jews proclaimed that they were specifically Iraqi patriots and their loyalty did not extend to the Grand Arab Nation. Finally, pan-Arabism in Iraq has acquired negative connotations in the Jewish context because of the pro-German stance of some radical um, Arab nationalists during World War II, the anti-Jewish activities of the right-wing uh, party Al-Istiqlal, I shall get back to this point, um, during and after 1948, and the gruesome killings of Jews by the Ba'ath in 1968. Therefore, when we write about Jews who loved uh, the Arabic language and Arab culture, we need to take into account the fact that these Jews rejected the appropriation of Arab culture by, by the nationalist messianism of anti-democratic Iraqi parties. So in other words, we need to separate between um, the cultural practices that were very much a part of a thriving Arab-Jewish culture in Iraq and the politics that appropriated Arab culture for exclusionist and hegemonizing agendas. Now, I want to add two more things that are three more things that are important in this context. First of all, transregional relations in Iraq, especially between Iraqi Jews and Iraqi Jews living in India and Iranian Jews, were very important. These are not um, Arab Jewish relationships. Secondly, there were many kinds of Arab Jews in Iraq. So you could be a communist that called himself, who called himself an Arab Jew, and you could be a man who supported the monarchy, um, who called himself uh, an Arab Jew. Um, and these two people very much hated the Zionist movement, but when it came to the state, to definitions of colonialism, to definition of imperialism, the relationship to Great Britain, America, they, these two Arab Jews had very different perspectives um, about what it meant to be an Arab Jew. Um, and finally, I think we need to reject this kind of Israeli uh, uh, categorization of very diverse communities from Sana'a, from um, uh, Baghdad, from Kurdistan, and sort of um, speak about Mizrahi identity. What I want to talk about is the uh, Iraqi context. Um, and within the Iraqi context, one thing to bear in mind is that the Jewish community were one amongst many minority communities. So in Iraq of the 20s and the 30s, the major division between uh, the Sunni elite and the Shia majority, the Arab-Kurdish divide, uh, the inner Christians divisions were much more important. And you see when you study the intellectual production of um, Arab Jews in Iraq, you see the same kind of trends that you see in the Iraqi context. Um, a much more pan-Arab uh, view uh, in the 1930s and 
and the rise of the left in the 1940s to which many Jews uh, belong. These are Iraqi processes, but they affect the perception uh, of Arab Jewish um, identity. Finally, the Iraqi public sphere in itself is really shaped as a prominent Iraqi hub rather than a cultural periphery that uh, imports ideas from Egypt and Istanbul um, and Tehran in the 30s and especially in the 40s. Um, and so when Jews integrate into this culture, it's also when this culture uh, becomes very prominent uh, in the Arab world. Now, discussions of Arab Jews are uh, often devoid of um, class differences. Um, and when we talk about the production of Arab Jewish identities in Iraq, it is very much related to the rise of the Jewish Efendia and the upper middle classes. So the Efendia marks the um, urban middle classes in uh, Arab society, and Jews are definitely part of these Efendia. They read the same products, they go to the same salons and literary cafes. Here is a cartoon mocking the Efendia sort of... Um, and they're uh, uh, sort of uh, ignoring the poor that you see here. But this really revolutionized, note the trick here, um, Iraqi Jewish life. Now, this process didn't start uh, in, the, uh, in the 20th century. It's actually a product of the Tanzimat, of the opening of uh, foreign schools uh, in Iraq. But it is uh, a process that continues in um, the 19, uh, in, the 19, in the 1950s and 40s. Um, here you see a fashion show in Baghdad, and you see the upper uh, Jewish uh, classes uh, in, a, in a dance. Now, I also want to make a note that class here is a slippery uh, term as well. Here is a very famous Iraqi Jewish singer, singer called um, uh, Samira Murad, or Samira Pasha. She comes from the lower middle classes, but she becomes a very important singer that sings in the colloquial Iraqi dialect and actually symbolizes uh, Iraqi nationalism to some sort. She later converts to Islam. She is being called Salima Pasha because Iraq's perpetual prime minister, Nouri Saeed, gives her the title of the Pasha. So what is she in terms of class? But obviously she's important to Arab Jewish identity. Uh, and finally, I want to uh, make a note of the classes that this conversation will exclude, uh, the urban poor. Uh, and here you see a woman veiling herself, a Jewish woman from the 1920s, so very different from the uh, Fendi and the upper middle classes. And also um, the uh, Jews in northern Iraq, in Iraqi Kurdistan, uh, that uh, interacted mostly with the Kurds and the Turkmen's and spoke a local dialect of Aramaic which is sometimes called uh, Kurdish Iraqi Jewish or, or things like that, but it's an Aramaic dialect, which is actually closer to the dialect spoken by the Christians uh, in these parts. Um, so you can see here the variety of identities in uh, Iraq itself. Now, it is with this uh, historical considerations um, in mind that I turn to the two poems written by uh, Iraqi Jewish authors, um, again, as a way of thinking about Arab Jewish identities in the context uh, of Hashemite Iraq. And the first poem is called The Sponge by Yaqub al-Bul. In 1936, an essay in the Najafi journal Al-Hatif, edited by Shi intellectual Ja'far al-Khalili, complained that Iraqis did not read works uh, written by Iraqi authors. One talented author even had to ask his father for financial help in order to print uh, his works. The young man in question, whose work the Najafi readers were asked to read, uh, was the young Jewish writer and poet Yaqub al-Bul, who was born in 1919 
a graduate of the Alliance uh, Israelite School in Baghdad, as I've mentioned, the school established in 1864, uh, which offered a French education to its uh, Jewish authors, uh, to its Jewish students. Now, he was a, a very gifted writer of short stories that tackled many taboos in Iraqi societies, honor killings, the failed settlements uh, of the Bedouins. Um, and many of his short stories also uh, created a, a little scandal in the literary scene in Baghdad. And such was the case with the poem uh, The Sponge, which he wanted to publish uh, in the late 30s in a very important daily called Al Alam Al Arabi that was very much identified with pan Arabism. And I'll just read you the poem, it's there. Uh, motion, motionlessly and inertly, the sponge grew on his rock, as if the rock gave it life, not knowing how he could live without it. His fathers, as well as his uncle and his grandfather, lived on the rock and found comfort. When he saw the whale and the fish moving freely, jumping high and falling back into the depths of the sea, joyful, jubilant, without regretting what had been lost, living mightingly between laughter and wonder... His forehead was covered with shame. He shivered, his cold blood gushed, and, he mo and moved the rock beneath him. He started asking for divine forgiveness and cursing the seas because they allowed a group of evildoers to secretly and publicly mock the lives of the rocks by swimming merrily and blithely. Now, the poem, as you can see, opposes two groups, uh, those who object to motion, the rock, the sponge, and, oh, sorry, and his forefathers, um, and those who are constantly moving, the fish and the haitan. Actually, I will put the responses here. They're more important. Uh, even when upset, the sponge is, is unable to do anything more than pray and curse. The only factors capable of producing movement from the sponge are fear and hate. Uh, these are what make him move under the rock and steer uh, his cold blood. Those associated with movements are characterized as happy, willing to change positions up and down, and interested in the present. The assumed motivation of the fish and the whale, however, are mediated through the sponge perspective, which associate activity and joy with impiety, moral transgression, and shameful acts. Images related to immobility and indifference to the changing of times were often employed in secular discourse to criticize uh, the conduct of a variety of conservatives in Muslim society. Arab intellectuals since the 19th century had been asking themselves uh, why their society, you know, this had declined and Western society had triumphed. In part, this question reproduced Orientalist binaries about the unchanging uh, nature of the East and the dynamic progress of the West, but it also was an attempt to come to terms with phenomena relating to modernity, colonialism, uh, that became ever so apparent in Iraq of this uh, period. And so if you look at the idea of stagnation, so many people, Bustani, Jamal Adin al-Afghani, Hussein, were writing about the idea of stagnation. Um, and in the sponge, stagnation is considered an extremely negative phenomenon. It's associated with the sponge, a creature that clings to the familiar and the traditional, prizes in activity, and is envious of those who lead a liberated life. Now, as opposed to the sponge, we have the fish, um, and, and the poem really celebrates movement. Movement and social mobility um, and also transformation were important themes in interwar Iraq. In fact, the experience of Iraqi modernities are intimately connected to the concept of movement. Uh, starting with the Tanzimat, Iraq's communication and transportation services began to see great improvement as constructions of roads, bridges over the Tigris and Euphrates, railways, um, and the paving of streets linked districts of cities and made the movement between city to city safer and quicker. 
The improvement in transportation and communication continued in the 20th century, and Iraqi intellectuals articulated the position that these acts were not only an improvement of the living conditions of Iraqis, but rather, in fact, symbolized modernity itself. So if you read a poem by Ma'aruf al-Rusafi on what it means to ride the train, it's really something quite uh, impressive. The emergence of Baghdad as the cultural and political hub of interwar Iraq changed the movement of individuals uh, in the city as well. So as reading clubs and societies were established and the number of school increased, increased spatial practices were transformed accordingly. Individuals walking the city street now included children moving between neighborhoods on their way to school, students going to the colleges in the city, young men on their ways to cafes, cinema, literary salons and nightclubs, and shoppers uh, browsing for merchandise along Al Rashid Street and the newest commodities sold in Rozdibe department store. Iraqi political elites as well as religious authorities often rebuke the young Efendia for wasting their time in pursuit of worldly pleasure and leisure. So, uh, for example, there was a Jewish newspaper, Al-Misbah, um, that critiqued, uh, that was out, the editor was absolutely shocked that some young people opened the club and they had a title there, La Hayat Bidun Al-Billiard, there is no life without billiard. And they said, this is what our young people are doing. So the merry fish and the emphasis on their constant hopping and jolting had to do with this urban practices and the Jidi Effendiya that roamed the streets of Baghdad. Now, Balbul's confidence that the public expression of his ideas would be favorably received, at least by some portions of Iraqi society, seemed to have been unfounded. A negative interpretation of the poem was quick to emerge. It was argued that he had intended to mock the religious establishment as a whole, and what was worse, the Muslim religious establishment in particular. Mohammed Hilmi, the Director General of the Ministry of Propaganda, summoned Balbuls to his office to criticize the strange style or of the poem. He wondered how Balbul dared apply the language of the kuffar, the unbelievers, to the language of the Quran and warned him not to write any po- such poetry anymore. Though Balbul did not target men of a particular faith with his criticism, Hilmi's interpretation of the poem was a reasonable, ju- was a reasonable justification for blocking uh, its uh, publication. And again, it was not the style, but rather that it was deployed in a critique of uh, religious values. Um, Hilmi's editor, Najib Hassoun, blocked the publication uh, of the uh, poem. Um, in 1979, Balbul summed up the affair. He said, I mentioned this affair to illustrate what, in my opinion, was current in Iraq of the time, namely the lack of tolerance as far as freedom of expression was concerned and the absence of democracy and freedom of publication, even in the monarchic era and during the existence of the so-called parliamentary regime. So it's interesting to note here that Balbul did not blame the religious authority for the censorship, but rather the state and its representatives. It was the lack of democracy and freedom of expression and the state's unholy alliance with certain conservative voices within Iraqi society that ultimately silenced him. But was Hilmi's interpretation correct? Was Balbul just writing about the ulama and the Islamic religious um, uh, uh, establishment? I would argue that no. Uh, and he, in fact, he was uh, criticizing both Jews and Muslims uh, in his uh, poems. And to understand what he was doing and how his perceptions of time are relevant to the Jewish context, it's important to emphasize how Jews understood narratives of Arab-Iraqi nationalism. So very briefly, Arab-Iraqi nationalism in the interwar period emphasized the power of Arab unity as a political strategy, but it also secularized the Islamic past. It stressed um, Arab culture, 
it looked at Islam as a cultural civil uh, as a culture as a civilization, and it secularized the Arab past. So the Arab conquest of Sasania and Iran, the Abbasid Empire, Saladin's battles against the Crusaders, were all seen as models for uh, national behavior um, of Jews. Um, and Iraqi Jewish intellectuals actually adopt this narrative, um, and they um, it, they create something that now I call Arab Jewish time. If I have enough brains to think about it when I was writing the book, it would have been better, but uh, now I think about it in this term, which is to say that they adopt the Arabic um, national narratives produced in Iraq, but they fit Jewish history into it. So the, so the narrative is Jews lived a happy life when the Muslim thrived. So um, when Arab culture thrived in the Jahiliya, there was a Jewish poet called Asamawa al-Ibn Adiyah. When the Abbasid Empire flourished, when Al-Andalus flourished, Jews flourished with it. When there was a period of inhitat, of decline, then Jewish culture in the East decline as well. And so they adopt the East-West binary on the one hand, but they're also adopting sort of these perceptions of time to explain their history. And I think that this is important, especially with relation to uh, European history, because here there wasn't a sense that society progressed while Jews somehow remained at the back. Uh, but it was rather that society in itself um, sort of uh, suffered from a state of stagnation, including the Jews. Um, and now we're in a period of revival and the Jews would revive with uh, revive their culture together with the revival of Arab culture. So the Abbasid Empire was very important uh, to Iraqi Jews. Now, along these very pan-Arab narratives, there was also an Iraqi uh, Watani or patriotic narrative. Again, this is happening in Egypt, in other countries. Uh, but the Iraqi understanding of this narrative was that uh, all the peoples of Iraq, including uh, the tribesmen, the Kurds, the Turkmen's, um, are molded by the geography of Iraq, by its landscape. And there's an interest in what happens in Iraq even after moments of uh, decline, such as the uh, Mongol Kong, uh, destruction of Iraq in 1258. So actually what happens in Ottoman Iraq is interesting. What happens in other periods uh, is interesting. And the perception that Iraqi history is uh, kind of uh, beginning in antiquity with the Babylonians and Assyrians and so on. Jews also take part in the production um, of these narratives and they talk about the fact that Abraham was a Jewish prophet, that um, uh, that came from Ur, Iraq. Um, they use shrines of Jewish prophets like Ezekiel or Jonah that are located in Iraq to claim that the space is also theirs. Even the Talmud is perceived as an Iraqi Jewish creation. Now, for those of you who know Jewish history and what happened with the first temple, this is a bit problematic as far as biblical history is concerned. But again, they're doing all these uh, turning and twisting to fit their narratives into the national narrative. Um, and so again, when Balbul is writing about stagnation, he's also writing about topics that are very relevant uh, to his identity. And you see that the mishmash of this identities and, and narratives also continues and so here's the quick reference to Mr. Mostaj. Um, the approaches to secularity um, are also very important uh, in the Jewish context, which is to say that he, when he was writing about sponges, he was not just thinking about the ulama, he was also thinking about Jewish sponges. Uh, if you look at the Jewish newspapers and you see the names of thinkers evoked, uh, philosophers like Bergson, like Comte, like Nietzsche are being mentioned by Jewish writers and they read them through Arabic lenses, through the writings of Salama Musa, through the writings of Ta Hussein. 
Jews go to uh, public schools at this period, the interwar period, and they also go to Jewish schools where they get instruction in Arabic from Arab Muslim teachers, either Sunnah or Shia. And they're exposed to an Arab print market uh, that offers very exciting pro uh, products. So if you read the autobiographies of Iraqi Jews, they will tell you all that they read Al-Mutanabbi and Al-Ma'ari, and they love this kind of poetry. Um, but if you actually look at what people read, I think it had to do not just with the poetry, but also with very popular uh, literature that talked about Tarzan and Sherlock Holmes and the Three Musketeers uh, and detective stories. Um, and uh, sometimes they would, you know, uh, pitch Tarzan against somebody else and so on. So um, I would claim that Tarzan contributed as much to the formation of Arab Jewish identity as did Ma'ari. But the point is that um, it opened up the world of Jewish kids to um, a whole world of fantasy. Um, that was not very uh, religious. Um, and finally, the leadership of the community changed. Um, uh, the important people were no longer the rabbis, although they were important, but rather the people that could get things done for the community. The parliament members, the senators, uh, the intellectuals, uh, the big lawyers, and so on. Um, and here you see uh, Iraq's first minister of finance, um, Haskell Sassoon, uh, with a group of very famous uh, British uh, imperialists uh, and colonial officials. Um, and so, again, there was a Hacham Bashi, uh, the rabbis were still there, it was important for a variety of issues, but people like Sassoon Haskell, here you see him um, representing Iraq in the Ottoman parliament, the he studied in Vienna, here you see the westernized uh, members of his uh, family, they were important and they were considered as representing the movement uh, of um, certain individuals in the city. Now, um, the, by movement I mean here social mobility. Now, as you recall, applying the language of the Quran was problematic uh, as far as Balbul's editors were concerned, and this was also problematic in the Jewish context. So these processes of secularity were not, and secularizations, um, were met with certain resistance. Uh, the, and you see different uh, debates about gender, about uh, opening schools for girls, um, about butchering, about um, arranged marriages, about dowry within uh, the Jewish community. Um, and with the issue of the Qur'an, I just want to mention uh, one of the fada'ih of the community uh, had to do with the opening of a school called Al-Wataniya in 1923. The director of the school was uh, an, an intellectual called Ezra Haddad, a Jewish school. Uh, he was not the director of Al-Wataniya, was Ezra Haddad, an intellectual. Um, and he started teaching in a, in a religious school that opened a branch in a certain neighborhood. Um, and he wanted to teach his uh, school kids how to read the Qur'an because he wanted to teach them Arabic grammar. So he thought, okay, this would be a good way. Um, 1923, rumors started circulating that he was trying to convert the children to Islam. Rabbis condemned him in synagogues. People came to his home to protest uh, his conduct. So he was kicked out of the school, the religious school, but the community opened a new school for him, which was called Al-Wataniya, where Arab literature and culture um, were actually uh, taught in, in, in a very high level. Um, and when Ezra Haddad was interviewed about this event in 1968, he said, I believed, that in the, I believed in the righteousness of my path, and I believed that the sons of Israel needed education. I was certain that the God of Israel would not hear the curses of the rabbis against me, because rabbis were important to me, but the people of my community mattered more. 
Um, and so again, thinking about the Jewish sponges, um, I think that this is uh, quite meaningful. Now, um, this kind of identification with Arab culture had also uh, political repercussions. Um, and it's very important to know that the members of these elites, the short uh, story writers and so on, um, the journalists, um, many of them uh, opposed Zionism. Uh, they wrote about other uh, national issues. So um, there was fascination with Sa'ad Zaghloul in Egypt. There was uh, much writing about um, uh, the Syrian battle for independence in the mid-1920s. Um, but there was also a focus on uh, Palestinian nationalism, especially in moments of trouble in Palestine. So in 1929, there is a major revolt in Palestine um, against the Zionists and the British, and the, uh, and the British in Iraq reports that, uh, report that representatives of the Jewish community come to the Haida Khane Mosque, where there's a big um, anti-Zionist rally, um, and they um, show their support for uh, the Palestinian cause. They in Baghdad were not connected with the Zionist movement or uh, in the British efforts to oust the Muslims from their holdings in Palestine in favor of Jews from abroad. Um, you see this even more prominently uh, in, the, in 1936-1939 when there's a major revolt in Palestine, again against the British and the Zionists. Uh, here is a petition from a journal called Al-Mustaqbal um, where the writers say, we all Arab Jewish youngsters, Arab Jewish, who work on behalf of Palestine, our Arab sister nation, pronounce our determination to preserve the Arab nature of Palestine and the rights of her Arab son. We support with our hearts and souls those who defend a strong Arab Palestine. Um, some elements in the Iraqi community accepted uh, this vision. Um, and you see this in particular in a journal called Habazbuz that was published in the Iraqi uh, colloquial uh, dialect. Um, and um, in 1936, they had, a, they, uh, had a, a dialogue between two Muslims about the fact that uh, Jews were uh, denouncing Zionism. Um, and so there's a, a, a conversation here, um, and here is uh, what the two Muslims are saying to one another in Iraq. Adon, and the word appeared in Arabic, Adon means mister in Hebrew. Adon Schwartz, who is he? A Zionist. Published an article in the newspaper Habokil regarding the declaration of Iraqi Jews that they disassociate themselves from Zionism and said that the declaration caused much pain to the hearts of the Zionists. May a thousand pains befall on their heads. And the conclusion, the Jews of Iraq are Iraqis before anything else and prefer this country to the rest of God's lands. Um, and you see here in a, in a cartoon published by the paper, uh, this is not a joke, this is a cartoon, um, uh, an, uh, an imam called al-mu'min here, a priest and the rabbis all holding hands and saying all Iraqis are brothers. So um, Balbul's poem, again, which I started with, in my opinion, uh, epitomizes the experience of Iraqi Jewish intellectuals. Balbul wrote in Arabic for an Arabic-speaking audience, and his ideas typify the Arabic Jewish milieu. The sponge was censored, but it was published a few years later in a collection of his poems, um, and Balbul did not become the Iraqi Salman Rushdie following its publication. On the contrary, he served as a leading member of the Baghdadi Chambers of Commerce and was a very popular short story writer. So now let's uh, jump 20 years uh, to another poem written by Sasson Sumich. This is Nagib Mahfouz, this is not Sasson Sumich. It was important for me to clarify that. 
1950, a Jewish student and aspiring poet, Sasson Somech, had a crush. He became infatuated with a young Jewish girl who attended his Jewish school, Shamash, one of the mixed, uh, few mixed high schools uh, in Baghdad. However, while he spent the summer repeating some of his classes due to his less than acceptable academic performance, she was placed at the top of the class and even snickered at his misfortune. In protest, Somech uh, wrote a poem called The Victorious, which juxtaposed the speaker's humiliation with his beloved victorious smile. And this is what he writes, the poem, The Victorious. Uh, good God, as my heart beats so humiliated that even your victorious uh, smile rekindles the fire of love within it. The blood in my cheek blazed, their deep red concealing my pale complexion. Oh, what a mighty smile was yours, all-encompassing, your sweet cunning, your haughty pride, and your radiance. Oh, what a smile it was that infused my innermost depths with love mingled with defeat. So Mech wanted to publish the poem, but it was rejected by his friend Rashid Yassin, the editor of the literary supplement of the journal uh, which Somech targeted for the publication of the work. Yassin informed Somech that the poem had caused an uproar because of the title and Somech's Jewish name. One of the editors argued that the poem was a radical allegory that referred to the war in Palestine and mocked the defeat of the seven Arab countries which fought against Israel. Rashid thus decided to shelve the poem. It was not published until some 50 years later in the Hebrew newspaper Haaretz. Although Sumer found no better way to express his romantic frustrations than to write an uh, Arabic poem uh, similar to many composed at the time, the realities of the Palestinian conflict imposed a new reading uh, of his poem. The conflict of 1948 governed his life and was constantly on the minds of his, uh, on his was constantly on his mind and the minds of other Iraqis and Jews. Somech was born in 1933 um, in Baghdad to an upper middle class Jewish parents. The father worked in the Ottoman Bank. The mother was a graduate of the um, Alliance School. Um, even uh, Somech kept his interest in Arab culture alive. His 1968 dissertation from Oxford University dealt with the novels of Nagib Mahfouz, who became a close personal friend of Somech over the years. Growing up in Baghdad, Somech's first step in the field of Arabic uh, literature paralleled those of Balbul. Like Balbul, Somech was immersed in Arab culture. As a child, he dedicated his summer vacations to reading um, Arabic adaptations of European children's books. As he grew up, he became interested in the works of Egyptian intellectuals, Tawfiq al-Hakim, Abbas Mahmoud al-Aqad, and especially Ta Hussein, whose reputation as a secularist uh, transformed him into a mythical hero, a brave fighter for truth, an Egyptian Galileo in Somech's eyes. Like Balbul, who began to publish his stories at the age of 18, Somech was but 17 when he was making his modest contribution to the Iraqi literary scene. He had met Iraq's most famous poet, Badr Shakr al-Sayyab, and had given him uh, an important collection of British modernist poetry. And through his teachers in Shamash, he met uh, especially a Shia intellectual called Muhammad Sharara. He met many more intellectuals uh, in uh, coffee shops and uh, literary salons. He also contributed to the Arab press. Pieces by Somech appeared in the satirical journal Abu Nuwaz, and partial translations of works of uh, George Bernard Shaw were published in the more distinguished social democratic uh, newspaper Saut El Ahali. Like Balbul, Somech was, uh, a rather, uh, had a rather secularized approach to matters of religion. He sensed, for example, that um, some biblical tales about the divine miracles belong to the genre of science fiction, 
rather than uh, the meaningful uh, spiritual experience of other Jews. Somech himself uh, saw himself as an Arab patriot. Um, and actually, Somech was my professor of Arabic literature, and um, he was very influential um, in sort of talking to me about his experience in Baghdad um, at the time. Um, and how sort of his formation as a young man in this uh, period affected really his career in Israel um, and in Iraq. Now, Sameh was not alone in having his uh, poem condemned uh, as referencing the defeat of the seven Arab nations by Israel and the expulsion of the Palestinians. When gifted writer Shalom Darwish wrote a short story about the goat being sold for seven dinars in his short uh, masterpiece, A Convoy from the Village, Kafila Minarif, the Director General of the Ministry of Justice increased the number of dinars to seven in order to argue that the author was symbolically mocking the selling of Palestine, symbolized by the goats, to the Jews and the defeat of the seven Arab nation states. Similarly, Kurdish Jews from the town of Zacho who prayed or danced, depending on the version, while mentioning the name uh, Israel in their prayers, were uh, arrested um, and charged with uh, supporting Zionism. Memoirs of Iraqi Jews from this period are filled with similar, and one might add sometimes funny, as well as idiotic accusations of them being uh, Zionists because of such misunderstandings. However, at times, Jews paid a heavy uh, price for uh, these alleged connections and were dragged into courts where they were sentenced to jail. Um, and it took very little to prove that somebody was a Zionist. A book, a rumor, a newspaper, a letter, even dating from the 1920s, uh, sent from Israel. So during, uh, I mean, then mandatory Palestine. So during the years 1947-1951, the Iraqi Jewish state increasingly lumped together uh, Zionism, Judaism, and communism, especially during and after the 1948 war in Palestine and the subsequent dislocation of its native Palestinian population. Although there were no, spe no specific uh, laws enacted against Jews, their employment rights were severely curtailed, especially in relation to government services, as was their ability to travel abroad and conduct businesses outside Iraq. Jews were fired from their positions and many were barred, although not officially, from entering universities. The State of Israel began to negotiate actively, indeed too actively, with the Iraqi government about the fate of Iraqi Jews, whose law, their property, their mobility, and their place of dwelling suddenly became a part of the Arab-Israeli conflict. Many of the matters relating to Iraqi Jewish life were decided upon in clandestine negotiations between Iraqi, the Iraqi and Israeli governments, negotiations that Iraqi Jews, uh, who had become pawns in the Arab-Israeli conflict, had no ability to control. Concurrently, the illegal Zionist underground in Baghdad, active since 1941, became bolder in its activities and managed to push for a change in the leadership of the Jewish community, thus endangering further the position of Iraqi Jews. And I want to emphasize a few uh, things here. Um, one is that in 1941, there was a major wave of anti-Jewish riots in Baghdad called the Farhud, following the aftermath of a pro-German uh, coup that failed. Um, 170 Jews were killed in these riots, but afterwards they actually integrated into the state and sort of let this, uh, let this uh, uh, horrible experience uh, kind of be forgotten in some ways uh, because they, again, um, Iraqi society 
society, the Iraqi uh, community flourished at the time. Um, but it was really, the, in my opinion, the identification of Judaism with Zionism, Judaism with communism, the fact that the members of the Effendi and the upper classes that promoted the Arab Jewish vision could no longer feel that they were secure in their positions. And the state failure in the 1948 war that actually resulted in, um, not in kind of soul searching what brought uh, about the defeat, but actually in uh, looking for Zionist agents in the country, um, really created a tragedy uh, that ended up in the departure of Iraqi Jews. Now, I'm not letting Israel off the hook here. Um, I will not deal in this conversations with the ways in which Israel manipulated the situation. This had been discussed in the works of Shinhav, Shiblak, more recently Esther Meir. But I do, however, want to comment on the ways in which the enforced linkage between the conflict in Palestine and the Iraqi Jewish community affected the public sphere in which intellectuals such as Somech and Balbul were operating. Um, so, you know, when an Iraqi Jew bought a newspaper, when Iraqi Jew read a book, when he listened to debates in parliament, when he went to a coffee shop, what did he hear? Um, and here the activities of the Iraqi ultra-nationalist groups, such as um, a, a pan-Arab right-wing party called Al-Istiqlal, considerably worsened the Iraqi Jewish position. Al-Istiqlal mouthpiece, Al-Yakza, made every Jew suspected Zionist, Zionist who should be banished from Iraq. The newspaper called upon the state to limit the travel of Jews abroad, as they were all aiming to go to Israel, and their participation in the workforce and the cultural sphere. One of Eliak's editorial commented maliciously that if Jews were denied uh, such rights, then Hezqel, uh, Moshe, and Ezra, typical Jewish names in Iraq, would wail and complain to no end. Uh, the paper also dismissed other uh, reports in other Iraqi newspapers about the horrific conditions in Israeli transition camps or about an Iraqi, um, about a rabbi who left Israel for Jordan vowing never to return until Zionism was defeated. Um, so the uh, Aliaqza labeled them as nonsensical. Um, and one of the most perilous arguments in that uh, respect was that the wrongs that were done to the Palestinians should be done to Iraqi Jews. Um, so one of its articles called uh, Not to Let Jews Teach Arab History and Arabic in Iraqi Schools. Um, and uh, you see here the quote, Ask Tel Aviv. Israel was always represented by Tel Aviv. Ask Tel Aviv if they have in their schools one Arab teacher. No, but in Iraqi school, there's a big number of Hasakila, the plural of Haskel, a Jewish name. Um, and so the idea is, again, uh, what was done to the Palestinians should somehow be done to the Jews. However, the Iraqi public sphere was not entirely submerged in a bitter campaign uh, of condemnation um, of Iraqi Jews. Some of the accusations about uh, the existence of uh, Zionism were actually accurate. And what happened was that with this kind of anti-Zionist campaign of the state, more and more Jews, uh, especially young ones, were attracted to Zionism. Um, and I think that when we talk about Arab Jewish identities, we need to take into account the fact that there were Zionist undergrounds in Arab countries. Um, the way I, I explain why Jews who were educated in an Arab country and exposed to um, Arab culture all of a sudden turned to Zionism have to do again with the nature of the Effendiya in Baghdad. So they identified in Iraq the same kind of things that communists, that socialists, that other Iraqis were identifying in Iraq. Uh, the gaps between rich and poor, the miserable conditions of the peasant, the fact that women uh, were oppressed. But uh, instead of uh, sort of 
thinking about this as uh, something that has to be solved in Iraq, the solution was to go to the land of Israel. Uh, they identified, in other words, the social ills that they saw in um, Iraqi society with uh, what Zionism called the miserable life of Jews in the diaspora that could only be rescued in the land of Israel. Here is a letter from a Zionist, Violet, in the late 1940s. I thought the Jews in the world are like that. Uh, I thought that the Jews in the world are like the Baghdadi Jews, egoist and weak. I am certain that not only I felt this way, but all Baghdadi Jews who self-honored um, has not died yet. Then came our brethren from the land of Israel to save us from slavery and explain to us the Zionist ideal and the difference between the Jew in exile and the Jew in the land of Israel. Here is another letter from an Iraqi girl who migrated to uh, Israel and she's writing to her parents from a kibbutz. I was surprised when I found out that you wished to uh, go to America. Do you think the Jews are better off there? If you think so, you're certainly in the wrong. Although it is quiet there now, anti-Semitism is rooted deep in the hearts. Wherever a Jew goes, he's a Jew. Who knows when will riots against the Jews of America begin? There are all sorts of phenomena in America that we, the Jews of Iraq, are familiar with and live through. Why would the Americans and the English not go after the Jews? Is it because they're people of culture and learning? The Germans were men of culture and learning as well. And so you see here the sort of universalizing of uh, Jewish history. Um, and whether for people like Balbul and Haddad, this East-West binary was very important. Here all of a sudden all Jews um, are the same. Um, all Jews uh, experience the same um, anti-Semitism um, that uh, was the lot of um, the Jews in Germany. And by the way, you can see this, how they write, the Zionists write differently about Iraqi Jews. So there were poor Jewish neighborhoods in Baghdad. 45, 46, the Zionists start calling them the ghetto. After the Holocaust, think about, after the Holocaust, calling a neighborhood in Baghdad ghetto is extremely meaningful. However, not all Jews uh, join the Zionist uh, underground. Uh, in fact, only a minority does of the young people. Uh, and many of them move to the left, which is a general shift in Iraqi culture. Many intellectuals identified with social democratic and communist causes. You can see it um, in art, for example. Um, and the left was uh, a very important uh, protector of Jews. And actually, you see this in the memoirs of uh, Sasson Somech when he writes Oy, oy, oy. when he writes about uh, sort of his, um, his experience in, uh, in leftist organizations. Um, and let's leave the slide like this and then I'll go back so it will uh, reappear. So um, one of the important organizations in the left was an organization uh, that was run by Iraqi Jews and was called Osbat Mukafhat Sayoniya. Um, the League for Combating Zionism, and it was run by Jewish-Iraqi communists. And there you see the Arab-Jewish concept being used, but in a, in a communist context. Um, their ideas were explained in, in uh, pamphlets, but also in a book called Asahayuniya Adwat al-Arab wal-Yahud, Zionism, the Enemy of Arabs and Jews. Um, and this is uh, what Zilcha writes there. Jews do not have a shared history. The history of Arab Jews is different from the history of uh, Russian or British Jews. And he goes on to writing that British Jews are part of the British nation, Ummah, just as Arab Jews are part of the Arab nations. They don't have a shared territory. They don't have a shared language. German Jews speak German. British Jews speak English. 
Arab Jews speak Arabic. They don't have a shared mentality, taqwin nafsi, that manifests itself in a shared culture. The definition of nationalism here is very interesting, but they lived for thousands of years in the various communities um, and became part of the societies in which they lived, which is, by the way, a classical communist uh, um, argument uh, as far as Zionism is concerned. Now, in addition to that, not all organs in the public sphere were um, anti-Jewish. Uh, um, and here, the mainstream press actually tried to prevent Jews from migrating to Palestine, or at least Israel at that time, or at least telling them what a horrible, horrible conditions Iraqi Jews faced in Israel. So if you take the journals uh, in Iraq in 1950 and 1951, uh, they give you a very good picture of what happens uh, in, to Jews in Iraq. They tell you that Jews live in, uh, in uh, transit camps, that they're living in tents, that they're being humiliated by the European Jews, and they're actually at the stations sort of saying to Iraqi Jews, why do you want to go and live where the Russian Ben-Gurion would treat you like Abid, like slaves? Uh, the Minister of Labor, Golda Meir, will discriminate against you. Uh, there's a, a right-wing party there run by an ex-terrorist called Menachem Begin. Why would you go? Um, there are also debates in uh, Parliament, in the Senate, about uh, where Jews actually and Muslims actually complain about discriminations, especially Senator Ezra Menachem Daniel. And significantly, there are also friendships and business connections uh, that uh, remain uh, quite important. And again, this idea that if you go to Israel, this is what you face um, is extremely important uh, to these um, Jews. Um, and what I'd like to um, end with is reference uh, a few, two texts that were written by um, Iraqi Jews about this period, kind of showing how the society around them really rejected the voices of the state and uh, the right-wing uh, parties in the state. And one of them is a book uh, written in Arabic called Al-Khuruj Min Al-Iraq, The Exodus from Iraq, written by Iraqi Jew called Ishaq Bar Moshe. Um, and he's talking here with um, a Muslim friend of his called Adnan. And Adnan asks him a question, and here I, I sort of, uh, I've written down the dialogue. So he's saying, imagine that you're already there, um, and that you're drafted to the army, and I'm drafted to the army here. If bro war breaks out, we will face one another. I find it difficult to, ima I find it difficult to imagine such a situation, but the possibility exists only in theory, because in practice, neither you nor I can recognize each other's faces in the battlefield. Meaning? Meaning that war is blind, deaf, and mute. But the possibility is horrifying. Then we need to make sure there will be no uh, war. True, at least for the both of us. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Levinas, you can do wonders um, with this paragraph, but you see here the anxieties um, of uh, Adnan, the uh, Muslim friend of, um, uh, of Bar Moshe, telling him, don't leave, uh, stay here. Uh, another important um, attestation of this narrative is a short story by Shimon Balas called Iya. Um, and this is about a woman called Zakia. Um, who is Shia, she's, um, she's a widow, and uh, she begins uh, taking care of the children of uh, a Jewish family, and she becomes like a second mother to them. And she's especially connected to Ephraim, who's the communist son in the family. 
And then all of a sudden the Jews leave. And she's actually losing the children that she raised. Um, and Balas is using here a well-known trope, uh, the nation as a woman, representing Iraq as a Shi'i peasant woman who comes to the city and kind of grieves the loss uh, of uh, her Jewish uh, children. And the last episode of the book, of the short story, happens when um, Ia is sitting all alone in the room and she's meeting Ephraim for the last time. She sat in the darkness of the kitchen, drain, drain of thoughts, numbed as if, she's, as if she fainted. After a few moments, she heard Ephraim's um, step coming up the, uh, steps coming up the stairs and then saw his shadow at the door. Why are you sitting here in the dark? He turned the electricity switch and entered the room. Sitting like this all alone in the dark, she blinked her eyes from the light and didn't reply. I brought to you something, he said, and handed her a book with a green cover, with a green cover decorated in green letters. I give you the Quran. And for those of you interested in literature, you can actually see what he does here with the green and gold of the Quran and uh, the darkness of the room, uh, sort of emblematic of the darkness that uh, will uh, be, you know, that will be her life after her kids leave. Uh, but this was not uh, enough. Um, sadly, Iraqi patriots such as Sumer could no longer write about love in Arabic. Sumer left Iraq in 1951 for Israel. So did Balbul. So to conclude, the process by which Iraqi Jews became Iraqi patriots who wrote in Arabic about Arab culture was, uh, uh, about Arab culture, uh, was a modern phenomenon. Um, so the Arab Jew is a modern uh, construct as well. While Jews in Arab lands in earlier times uh, had written in Judeo-Arabic and hybridized many of the currents of uh, medieval uh, Muslim philosophy, theology, and literature, in the modern period, the emergence of Iraq as a nation state generated new constructs. In the context of greater secularity, or rather a secularizing society, increased social mobility within Iraqi society, and the emergence of an urban public sphere with exciting new literary and cultural forms of expressions, Jews came to identify more closely with the society in which they lived and with the Iraqi nation state. This took place in a context where Christians, Shiites, and Sunnis forged a new social contract with the state as well. The Iraqi state um, never promoted equality and was founded on the assumption that political hegemony was the prerogative of the Arab Sunni elites. Yet within this unequal political community, there was room for talented middle-class men of all religions to find a place in society and rise upwards. Remember the fish. Jews who enjoyed an excellent education system that promoted bilingualism were at the forefront of this trend as a host of young and talented Jewish writers showed no hesitation in challenging the sociopolitical conventions typifying Iraqi society. Tragically, as Jewish-Iraqi patriotism reached its peak, the conflict in Palestine made the identification of uh, Jews with Arab and, uh, and Iraqi cultures an impossibility. Elements in the state, and especially the spiteful nationalist press, identified every Jew, even the most Arabized, as a Zionist. And ironically, the Arab uh, nationalist press and uh, Israel were speaking in the same voice. The nationalist voices grew less important after the mass migration of Iraqi Jews with respect to the 5,000 Jews who remained in Iraq, and especially during the regime of Abdel Karim Qasim, which was a golden age for Iraqi Jewry. These nationalist voices, however, returned in full vigor in 1968. 
On the other hand, an analysis of uh, the Hashemite public sphere from 1948 onwards, and again, I haven't given you here the political history with the denationalization laws and the freezing of Jewish property and so on, but again, the analysis of the public uh, sphere uh, shows that the host of Iraqi writers, intellectuals, and political activists did not agree with the state's position and the binary of positions it advanced. They still cherish Arab-Jewish coexistence, first in Iraq and later in the diaspora. Jews, for their part, commemorated this coexistence in their writing in Arabic and Hebrew. Ia was written in Hebrew, um, especially through the genre of autobiography, but not only. And these voices provide us with some hope in the present rather gloomy state of affairs between Arabs and Jews. Thank you. <laughs>